if we think about neuroplasticity at every level of neuroscience, there's the rewiring, the circuit changes. But if you really get all the way up the chain and you do a lot of circuit changes and make new neurons, parts of the brain are going to change size, right? So that's like pretty gross neuroplastic changes. And by gross, I just mean it's like visible with the human eye. And that's been demonstrated, meaning that yoga interventions in studies in randomized controlled trials have shown changes in the size of different brain structures. Welcome to A Way of Thinking. I'm your host, Jessica Wong. This podcast is dedicated to lighting the way towards greater inner peace and purpose. My own journey has taken me from a decade-long corporate finance career to following my own path as a purpose coach. I help people move from an unfulfilling career to a meaningful and purpose-driven career and life. Now let's dive into today's show. Hello and welcome to this episode of A Way of Thinking. I'm your host, Jessica Huang. And in today's episode, my guest is Jonathan Rosenthal. Jonathan and I talk about how yoga affects our brains and the studies that are scientifically proving the benefits of stress reduction, better sleep, and so much more. We discuss how different brain regions can actually grow and shrink over time. And we talk about how yoga helps us gain self-regulation to reduce stress, dramatically improve depression and anxiety, and find more compassion and empathy for others. So stay tuned for my conversation with Jonathan Rosenthal. And before we get started, I'm going to go over a few quick announcements. So the first announcement is a big thank you to Alana Sandler for donating to A Way of Thinking podcast. And if you would like a quick shout out and to donate to the podcast, you can do so at jessicahuangcoaching.com slash donate. Second announcement is that if you are looking for assistance in pursuing your passion, purpose, and finding more creativity in your life, then please go to my website, jessicahuangcoaching.com and book a free discovery call with me to get started. And last but not least is that if you would like to join me on the mat, I have three classes on Sundays. So at 9.30, I have Psychic Development, a series of mantras and pranayama. And then I have Yoga Nidra at 10.30, which is a meditation for deep relaxation. And lastly, there is Charging Practice, which is a Hatha Asana class. And I would love to see you either online or in person for all of those classes. So please reach out to me, DM me on Instagram or reach out to me on my website to join any of those classes. So thank you so much for listening. It means so much to me. And without further ado, here is my conversation with Jonathan Rosenthal. Our guest today is Dr. Jonathan Rosenthal, MD. Jonathan is a clinical fellow in neurophysiology at Weill Cornell School of Medicine. He is a fellow Dharma Yoga instructor at Dharma Yoga Center, and he is the founder of the Neuroscience and Yoga Online Conference, which brings together neuroscientists and yoga teachers to share the actual science of how yoga affects the brain and he is currently based in New York City. So welcome to the show, Jonathan. Hello, thank you so much for having me. It's such an honor to be here with you. Um, really, really just special. <laughs> Absolutely. No, I'm so excited to have you on the show, Jonathan. You know, we were both doing our 800 hour earlier this year and connected over that. And it's just been such a pleasure, you know, practicing together and getting to know Jonathan and all the great work that he does. So I am so excited to have you on the show today. Likewise, I've been following the podcast and you're doing amazing work too. So it's just really awesome to be here. Also, we have to hold each other accountable to finishing our 800 hours still. <laughs> That is correct. We definitely need to do that. We are buddy systeming. We already talked about it. So I am looking forward to that. <laughs> okay. So Jonathan, I want to start off with what does purpose mean to you? Purpose is an evolving thing to me. And I'm still figuring out exactly what it means to me. I think, you know, if you asked me 10 years ago, 
I would feel very strongly that purpose was kind of purely just helping people. As I've gone through my medical training and all of that, I, I think sometimes it's more than just helping people because that's not enough. People also need to learn how to help themselves. And it's really about kind of educating people more than just like doing things for them and helping them that way. And I really see it as kind of, it's not something that there's one definition and anytime you meet that, you are fulfilling purpose. It's something that you feel and that's why it's always changing. So, you know, what brings me purpose right now is not necessarily going to bring me purpose in the next 10 years, just like what did 10 years ago doesn't right now. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So Jonathan, I know that you've been on a kind of an interesting journey. So can you talk a little bit about how you ended up becoming kind of the person that's bringing together neuroscience and yoga? Those are two very, very different things. So if you could share a little bit about what that journey has been like for you. It was very conflicted for a long time. And I'm finally at a point where I'm like, oh, this is normal. <laughs> I initially was interested in medicine more than yoga, and I started becoming interested in pursuing medicine as a child. I don't know why, but for whatever reason, I would take my grandmother's blood pressure all the time. I would tell her how much salt she had to eat every day so that her blood pressure would be perfect. And I would listen to her heart. I made my parents buy me a stethoscope so I could listen to her heart. And yeah, it was so weird. I don't know why I did that, but it was really enjoyable to me as a kid. And then I really became interested in the brain. Again, I don't know exactly why it kind of just developed, but I'm sure it contributed that my grandmother actually had a stroke when I was a kid and she lost the ability to talk. And so, you know, anytime a stroke happens, there's not enough blood flow to the brain. And so parts of the brain die. And a very unfortunately common stroke is to hit the language centers there's a lot of blood that goes to the language centers. And so there's a lot of opportunity for clot to go there. And this happened to my grandmother. She, you know, never talked again for the rest of her life, which was really hard. And so I obviously devastated so much emotion around that, but also like, how could the brain be organized in such a way that one hit and boom, language is gone? You know, that was kind of where I started thinking about that. And I remember my other grandparents would always take me to Barnes and Noble and I would always get books about the brain. <laughs> Weird kid. And I would just try to like understand like how do cells organize into networks and how do networks organize into functions. And yeah, so that's really where my interest in medicine and science came from. And it's amazing now to kind of look back at that journey because in the last few years, I don't know how many times but definitely like, you know, close to 20 to 30 times I've been able to save someone's language. So now in modern medicine, you know, when my grandmother had a stroke, we didn't have these things. But, you know, we have treatments that are medications and surgeries that pull the clot out or break the clot up and it saves people's brain. You know, it prevents the permanent damage that happens from a stroke. And every single time I do that, I'm like, oh, my God, I just saved someone's language and it feels amazing. So yeah, that is kind of the medicine side of it. And then yoga also was kind of accidental. I think I was always kind of a someone who kind of sought internal things. And I read a book in high school that they made us read. And it was Siddhartha by Herman Hesse. And it's basically, it's not about Siddhartha Gautama. It's kind of like a parallel story. And it's just this person going through their self-realization journey. And you would think that, you know, the whole beginning of it is they're kind of living like a monk. They are an ascetic. They live in the woods. They beg for food. They don't have any possessions. And this person was born a prince. And then he realizes that he's not getting self-realization after like 10 years of doing that. So then he starts pursuing like all the worldly desires he possibly can. He like goes and lives in kind of this like, I don't know what the right word is, but there's just like a lot of revelry there and like food and sex and drugs. And he just like lives that life for a while. And he's like, Nope, this isn't doing it either. I'm not getting self realization here. And then I forget most of the rest of it. But the end of the book is, he's like, well, I guess it'll just happen when it happens. And he's sitting by a river and watches the water flowing through and realizes that even though 
like all the water molecules and everything moving through that river is changing, the overall form is the same. And he just like becomes enlightened in that moment. Wow. <laughs> it was such a fascinating story to me. And so I started reading, you know, like Wikipedia rabbit holes, right? Mm -hmm. So I started doing a Wikipedia rabbit hole about a lot of different Eastern philosophies, ended up coming upon the Bhagavad Gita and the Yoga Sutras, really wanted to take a yoga class. But I was kind of feeling like if I went to a yoga class, it would just be me, a teenage boy and a bunch of middle aged women like my mom's friends. And I was like, that seems weird. Like, I don't think I'm going to enjoy that. So I never went. And then I was a runner and I hurt myself running. So I couldn't run for a while. And my friend was like, why don't we go to yoga instead? And I was like, OK, you know, I think now's the chance. Like, I'll try it. And I went and not only was it all middle aged women, but they were all in bathing suits. <laughs> and I was like, I was like, what have I done? <laughs> but I ended up loving it. And I went to this hot yoga place. My yoga teacher still teaches in the town that I grew up in. And it's just like it was actually an amazing community, even though it was totally different from what I was expecting and started learning how to relax, how to meditate, how to do breathing exercises. And after a couple years practicing there, one of the teachers said, hey, there's another teacher you should meet. His name's Dharma. He's in New York City. And this is kind of an aside story, but it's it's also like a great moment where you, I don't know, I feel like people growing up when they experience this, it's like, oh, wow. I told my mom, I'm going to go to the city. You know, I had my driver's license. I'm going to go. I'm going to take class with Dharma. And she was like, no, you're not. <laughs> She's like, you're not going by yourself. No way. Because I guess, you know, fear of danger. And I was just like, no, I'm going to go because I'm, you know, I'm going to be an adult. I'm going to be in college soon. You should, you know, see this as an opportunity for me to have some independence. And she was like, all right, you're right. <laughs> and it was just such a great day. I remember that day so well. It was the first time I met Dharma. It was 2011. And I drove to the train station, took the train into Penn Station, walked to Dharma Yoga Center, which was on 23rd and 6th. And I think master class back then, I took the 12 o'clock master class. And it was scheduled for two hours, but Dharma just like ran late, like consistently. And I think it went until like, I don't know, 2.15, 2.30. Like we were there for a really long time, I remember. <laughs> and so much of it was a Shavasana at the end. And it was incredible. And I left there like changed. <laughs> yeah. So that's how I got into both of them separately. And then for the next like 10 years, I was like, oh, these are completely at odds with each other. Like science and medicine are all about you know, data and the material world and yoga is all about this metaphysical and ethereal world and they can't interface at all. Wait, I have to ask a clarifying question along this journey before we keep going. Like, yeah, first, how old were you like when you were starting both of these things? Because I know you were very young starting yoga. And I'm also very fascinated that your school like had this book like in their curriculum because that is not normal curriculum. <laughs> books like yeah amazing it was really lucky and the English teacher I guess who probably picked that book and made it in my curriculum is also kind of into mm. you know spiritual things and organic food <laughs> and I still keep in touch with her so yeah I guess I was 14 when I read that book okay and then how old were you like playing around with the stethoscope and all that stuff like six to ten fascinating yeah really young yeah and then you were, I'm assuming you were like, I don't know, like, how old were you when you first saw Dharma then? I think I was 17. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I was like, I got to like timeline a little bit of this for a second. But I'm like, yeah, I assumed you were like super young. I always find that interesting. It's like, it always makes me think of like reincarnation. Like, were you a doctor in the last life? You know, like. Yeah, I doubt it. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, it's pretty weird looking back on it and seeing how it kind of all just like fit together. But yeah, I saw so much conflict between them. And now I'm at a point where I'm like, wait a minute. No, science is just looking at like if you think about the world as subject and object, like there's the witness, the thing that sees everything and all the things that are seen. Science is everything that is seen. 
That's how you study that effectively. And yoga is how you study the subject, the thing that sees. Mm -hmm. And like, oh, this makes perfect sense now. Oh, I love that description. That's so like visceral where it's like, oh, of course, they are interconnected. It's just that we've been deciding that they are two separate entities that can't intermingle. Exactly. Yeah. Amazing. Okay. So tell a little bit, like, how did you end up actually combining the two? So I wouldn't say that I... (laughs) I'm interested in how they intersect. And when I was really seeing the conflict between them and like grappling with that in my head, I was like, well, maybe there's work studying how yoga affects the brain. And it's amazing because every year more and more papers are published about, you know, research about how yoga affects so many different aspects of the brain. And when I say so many, like more and more papers, it's exponential. It's not like 100 papers are published every year. It's like 100, then 200, then 400, then 800. Like it's just an exploding field right now. And so when I started reading some of these papers, I was like, wow, like, why don't people know about this? Like, we need to get this out there. And I went to college in New York City and we had this brain awareness week which is an international celebration of neuroscience. There were hundreds of events across New York City. We used to get on a bus and like drive around and kids would come on the bus and we'd show them all these cool science experiments. And they always were encouraging students to make their own events. So I was like, what the heck am I going to make an event about? And I realized like, oh my God, I can make it about these papers about yoga and neuroscience. And that was really the first time like a neuroscience and yoga event, you know, was something I got to contribute to. So it was... 2014, it was a small, I think maybe 10 people came and we just had a presentation about how yoga affects memory after a yoga class. And then over time, we started adding experiments. So before and after the yoga class, people would do experiments related to the topic that was being presented so they could see how yoga affects their own neurophysiology. And then once COVID happened, you know, the entire time all the previous events were happening, it was all students presenting other people's work. But once COVID happened, I was like, wait a minute, it has to be online. This is the perfect opportunity to invite these researchers. And I wanted to meet them so badly, right? (laughs) And so, yeah, it was a great opportunity to reach out to these people whose papers I've been reading and who I'm so interested to talk to and have them present their work themselves. And so that's how the Neuroscience and Yoga Online Conference came about. Amazing. Amazing. I love that ability to go like, hold on, I can actually create this thing that doesn't exist right now. And that I happen to have this like perfect placement of like these two pieces that like I love and bringing them together. So that's so cool. I love that. Yeah, it's been a really satisfying thing. (laughs) Absolutely. All right. So can you talk a little bit about what exactly is neuroscience? Yeah, so neuroscience is the study of the nervous system. And this is objectively, according to everyone, I'm joking, (laughs) the most important field of science, because it really includes every aspect of science. The nervous system exists across every discipline. So there is a biology about how the nervous system works. There's a chemistry about how it works. There's a physics about how it works. There's a computational neuroscience aspect. There is a psychology of how, you know, the behavioral and interpersonal results of brains. (laughs) And then there are kind of societal and sociological implications as well. So neuroscience really is like everything. And it makes sense because like our brain is kind of the thing that makes all these things. So of course, it's like going to be important for all of it. Yeah. And yeah, neuroscience is the broad discipline of studying how brains and nerves create perception and cognition and memory and behavior and motor function and everything. Okay. As shortly as I can. (laughs) Yeah, I love it. And then like alongside that, because we were talking a little bit before this, but like, can you explain what neuroplasticity is? Absolutely. So this is a huge word right now. Everyone loves the word neuroplasticity. Yeah. And plastic just means changeable. I think that's why plastic that we like buy, like, you know, that everything comes in is called plastic is because it could be molded into anything. Mm -hmm. And yeah, that's also why plastic surgery is called plastic surgery. It's because they mold it to look however. And so neuroplasticity is how nervous systems, how brains in particular change in order to adapt to an environment. Okay, fascinating. And it's at every level. So it's not like I think people think that neuroplasticity is always rewiring 
meaning that brain cells are forming new connections with other brain cells and creating new circuits. But it doesn't have to be. A neuron can actually change how it responds just by changing which proteins and channels are in its membrane. And it can do that every hour <laughs> without having to form any new connections. Other ways that neurons are constantly changing is by growing, <laughs> by forming new neurons. So there is the ability of brains, particularly in this part of the brain called the hippocampus, to create new neurons that can then obviously make whole new circuits, right? Not just within the ones that already exist. Yeah, so neuroplasticity is a huge, huge concept. And I think what we really mean when we talk about it in the context of yoga is how is the brain getting better at doing other things? Like how does practicing yoga make your brain better at doing other things? And there's a lot there. <laughs> Yeah, no doubt. And I want to dive into some of that. But thank you for explaining like all the different nuance of neuroplasticity, because you're right, I do think of it as just rewiring your brain. But I have also like heard from things that I study and whatnot, there's, you know, this idea of like, growing the prefrontal cortex part of your brain versus the amygdala. And so is that what you're talking about when you say like growing more neurons? It's actually like shrinking one area and like growing a different area of your brain? Yeah, that's such an important question. So I think one of the most evidenced areas for how yoga changes the brain. So think about how you can measure neuroplasticity. In a human, it is very hard to measure a circuit. So in order to do that, you would need to put a lot of electrodes into the brain. And the only time that it's ethical to do that is in patients who have epilepsy, where you're trying to figure out like what part of the brain are you going to cut out? We don't have that. Where like, you know, we know exactly how neurons connections with each other are changing. However, we do have MRIs, thank goodness for modern technology. And MRIs are really good for structure. They can show you how does the anatomy look without any, you know, knives or scalpels or anything? And if we think about neuroplasticity at every level of neuroscience, you know, there's the chemical ones we talked about where you change the proteins and the receptors. There's the rewiring, the circuit changes. But if you really get all the way up the chain and you do a lot of circuit changes and make new neurons, parts of the brain are going to change size. Wow. Right. So that's like pretty gross neuroplastic changes. And by gross, I just mean it's like visible with the human eye. Right. And so that's been demonstrated, meaning that yoga interventions in studies in randomized controlled trials have shown changes in the size of different brain structures. And the main ones that stand out are actually the hippocampus. And I think the paper is by Dr. Neha Goethe, who is at the University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign, I think. I might be misremembering. And she did this great work looking at how, I think it was eight weeks. No, it had to be longer. I forget how long the yoga intervention was, but it was a certain amount of time, many, many weeks, and people's hippocampus actually grew. And what is the purpose of the hippocampus? Great question. So the hippocampus is one of the main memory centers, and its role is to take memories and figure out what's relevant. So if you go to a hotel on vacation, you know your room number for the four days. The second you leave, you will never remember it again. And the hippocampus is kind of the main part of the brain figuring out how do we know what's important? What should we remember? And then it stores it in other parts of the brain. So the hippocampus isn't storing memories. It's kind of figuring out what's important and then makes it into a memory and then stores it elsewhere. And there's actually just, this is very interesting. So I know this is a little tangential and I'm sorry I'm talking so much, but not at all. There is this, you know, 50 to 70 years ago, no one knew what the hippocampus did, right? We just knew what it looked like on a pathology slide. But there was a patient who had really bad epilepsy named HM. And because the hippocampus is so interconnected to every part of the brain, it's very sensitive to seizures, meaning that like when seizures happen, it helps them spread throughout the whole brain. So one of the treatments for severe epilepsy is to take out the hippocampus. Mm. And there are two. There's one on each side. So, you know, in modern times, we would only ever take out one. And we do tests before to see how bad it's going to be. Like, how disabling is this going to be? And obviously, it's like a risk-benefit thing, right? Like, people might have some memory deficits, but is that worth not having seizures? Mm -hmm. And so, but what they did in the 50s, and this was experimental, was they took out both hippocampi. And this patient, he's very famous. His name is H.M., 
he never formed a new memory after that day. So he remembered everything before the surgery, really about like three months, anything before three months before the surgery, he remembered. But everything after that, every doctor he met, every person he met, as if he met them the first time. Hmm. And so that's how we know what the hippocampus does now. <laughs> that's fascinating. I mean, like talk about being in the present moment because you have no past almost, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. He probably could still worry about the future a bit. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> that part didn't go away. <laughs> That is so interesting. Okay. So would you say that that is the main thing that is getting affected by us practicing yoga is really the hippocampus? No, you're shaking your head. There's so much more to it. No. So if I were to summarize it, my take of the literature is that yoga works by many mechanisms, meaning that it is changing so many different things within the brain and really the whole body that if you were to mess up any one of those pathways, there would still be effects. Hmm. So if I were to block the hippocampus from getting bigger, I still think people who practice yoga would have better sleep, would have lower stress and would have better mood, independent of the hippocampal effects. I think the hippocampal changes are probably responsible for some of the memory improvements and cognitive improvements that we see with yoga, but I don't think it's all of them. And why do you think that yoga has this effect on us? Yeah, it's a great question. So like when we think about how, let's say, like a certain medication works, like let's say we're talking about blood pressure, right? Blood pressure is probably the most commonly diagnosed condition. If someone gets a calcium channel blocker, which is one of the main types of, you know, it's the first line medication prescribed for high blood pressure, it's going to relax the blood vessels so that there's less kind of resistance that the blood is flowing through and now the pressure goes down. So that's like a very simple model. It's like you just need to understand the size of the blood vessel, like what a calcium channel does and like you're good. That's it. I don't think it's going to be that simple for yoga. I can't answer why. I think the stress part of it, how it affects stress regulation is super important. I think how it affects sleep is super important. So I think that those might be two of the most unifying pathways but I don't think that's it. And I do think that an experiment needs to be done. It's kind of a mean experiment, but I would love to see it done, which is where you have people do yoga, you do a yoga intervention, and you have one group that's doing the yoga intervention and you're seeing you know, the changes that you expect, the changes in mood and memory and stress and sleep. And then the other group, you sleep deprive them. You don't let them have any sleep benefits from the yoga. So if they were sleeping four to five hours before, they're still going to sleep four to five hours. Whereas the other group, you know, if they slept more or they slept better, they're allowed to do that. And then we would really see, is the sleep benefit from yoga necessary for all of the other benefits? Mm. I think it's possible. I don't know the answer. I don't know what the result would be, though. But they have to be sleep deprived. Right. From <laughs> In order for us to know that the sleep mechanism, like improving sleep is one of the main ways that yoga works. <laughs> okay. Yeah, no, that sounds like it would be a very interesting study. Maybe you will work on that one day. <laughs> <laughs> I feel bad for that group. Okay. No, that's interesting because it is one of those things where it's like, yeah, it's. I feel like there's so many, like it's intangible, right? Like why is yoga helping us so much? But it is. Right. It's kind of the sentiment, right? And it's also really interesting because most people who practice yoga come back to it because of the personal experience they have about how it changes so many aspects of their lives. I mean, for me personally, I feel like I'm a much nicer person. I don't get angry. I don't like I'm just so much calmer about everything. I sleep better. I'm able to focus immediately if I need to. Yeah, th that's my personal experience. And that is a level of evidence like that's like, you know, somewhat convincing if a lot of people are saying that. But now the science is coming out like we can actually measure these changes across a population and see like how big of a difference this is. And the data are there. Like, yeah, people perform a lot better at cognitive tasks with mood scores. They have resistance to stress. So like if you try to stress people out, they actually are resistant to it with yoga practice. So there's a lot. A lot of people go to yoga because they feel calmer, exactly as you said. Right. And so it's like, we go to the mat because it's like the place where we feel that bit of serenity when like the rest of our life might feel like chaos, right? But then I guess the thing is like, to your point, is that it's actually changing the circuitry in our brain that is helping us then deal with the chaos when we're not on our mat. 
Is that kind of what the neuroscience is proving? Yeah. So it's really hard to measure circuitry. Like by circuitry, I mean like which neurons are connected to which. Because if you think about how big a neuron is, it's, I think it's 10 to the negative six or seventh meters. So it's a million times smaller than a meter. It's very hard to measure that. And the only way is with like an expert who can place an electrode right in the neuron. Mm -hmm. So short of that, what evidence do we have to understand how circuits change? There are MRI techniques that look at blood flow and you can infer how active different brain regions are based on how much blood they're taking. And then you say if activity tends to correlate, meaning one part of the brain gets active at the same time another one does, then those are probably connected. Now you can see how many assumptions this technique is making, right? It's not the best technique, but it's you know what we have right now. So with those techniques, we do see that people, so there's another part of the brain very close to the hippocampus actually called the amygdala, which is responsible for fear conditioning. And so it's kind of just like the hippocampus is figuring out like, what should we remember? The amygdala is figuring out like what's fear inducing, like what's something that we need to like mobilize resources and freak out about. And people who have kind of chronic stress and fear conditions, usually the amygdala is overactive and it actually gets bigger in these people too. And that's kind of just reflecting how this part of the brain is in overdrive, kind of working hard to figure out, you know, what's fear inducing and it's assigning a lot of things as that. Now, the way that the amygdala gets calmed down, <laughs> so to speak, is another part of the brain that you mentioned, the prefrontal cortex, which is a very advanced part of the brain that I can't even imagine us ever really fully understanding, but it is the most abstract part of the brain. Like I think of the parts of the brain as like, you get information in like, this is what light waves look like, like this is the touch receptors, right? And you just keep abstracting from that, getting more and more further away from what it is. So like from just light waves, you start extracting like contrast and then you have lines and then you have shapes and then you have faces and then you have people, right? Like that's like very abstract as you keep going up the layers. Well, the prefrontal cortex is even more abstract than that. So it's like goals and yeah, purpose, <laughs> like we talked about at the beginning. So the prefrontal cortex is a very uniquely human thing as in how abstract it is. And it is connected to many parts of the brain and directly or indirectly to the amygdala. And what we see is that in people who practice yoga, the prefrontal cortex is able to kind of dampen down the activity of the amygdala. And the amygdala actually shrinks mm. with yoga practice. That's not a well-supported claim. I shouldn't say that. There's some evidence that it shrinks. <laughs> It's not the best studies. Okay. Okay. Yeah. No, that's very interesting. That was my understanding of the amygdala is that it's like this fear and it's kind of like this like more primitive part of our brain. Is that correct? Yeah. That's a fair way to think of it. Right. And so, yeah. And I love what you were saying there about how like if we're chronically stressed, that is actually enlarging that area of the brain. And so yoga is actually... I mean, like, you know, I get that the studies may not ha be like super in depth on that, but I can appreciate the idea that that would get smaller through yoga practice because you're kind of like, it is in essence calming our nervous systems, is it not? Right. So it's improving what we would call self-regulation, which is the prefrontal cortex, its ability to say, okay, what are our goals right now? And it's like, okay, the goal is to accomplish these, these, these like, you know, whatever. And this stress, this fear is not helping, suppress it. Mm. Which is like a very special thing when you think about it. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So it's able to then, yeah, we're saying like, oh, we don't need to worry about this thing. It's not actually, because I think that's the thing, right? Is like we're often creating fears that are not like real fears, if we would, right? Because it's like that part of the brain was keeping us from like being attacked by a tiger, but like there's not tigers around. So then we're assigning all these other things to be stressors and fear inducing things, right? And so to your point, the self-regulation would then help us kind of monitor like what is really something to be afraid of versus not. Right. Monitor and correct. Exactly. Okay. Fascinating. Okay. And then so on the flip side of that, when you're saying like the prefrontal cortex is actually the area that might be expanding through our yoga practice. So it's then allowing us to move in a better direction, would you say? You know, it's really hard to answer that question. The prefrontal cortex is really a mystery. <laughs> like, you know, I'm sure there are experts way, way, who know way more than I do. But I think even they still don't 
even touch how the prefrontal cortex works. Like the visual system, neuroscience has made a ton of progress. We really understand like the steps of how visual processing occurs, like so much to it. But prefrontal cortex is hard. <laughs> yeah. No, it's interesting because from like a coaching side of things, like it, some of the programs I'm a part of, they talk about it as though, you know, in the journey of moving towards like self-realization, it's actually more in the prefrontal cortex in that higher, it's almost like our higher self coming through in that area of the brain versus like the amygdala, which is that primitive kind of part of our brain. Yeah. This is one of the things that I find really challenging, like when I conflict science and enlightenment. And, you know, sometimes you'll hear people say that like the self localizes to the pineal gland or something like that. And or like the third eye is the pineal gland or you hear a lot of these things. And I have looked into like why people say that and where does that come from? And it's actually from the 1500s. And this was the reasoning. And you'll see why it actually makes no sense. So Rene Descartes was a philosopher who he was kind of like a polymath, like did a ton of things. And he was dissecting brains. And he had this whole like duality mindset that, you know, there's like the spiritual or the self or whatever we want to call it. And then there's like the more objective materialistic stuff. And he looked at the brain and basically everything was paired. So there's two hippocampi, two amygdala, two sides of the prefrontal cortex, like everything had two. But when he looked at the pineal gland, which was in the middle, it was one. And so he concluded that must be where the spirit lives because there's only one. Mm. But that makes no sense. <laughs> right? Like, and also, it's not the only thing that there's only one of in the brain. Like, if you look carefully, there are actually a lot of things that there's only one of. So, not an assumption. Yeah, it's a very big assumption. And I think that that is where that kind of originated from and has been propagated. But, like, I'll tell you right now, like, I've seen pineal glands on a lot of different MRI scans, and it's very common that it gets, like, kind of destroyed or calcified. And people are like still are, you know, normal people, right? They're still they still have like, however, we wanted to think of them before. And if you were to cut their pineal gland out, you know, the pineal gland is responsible for making melatonin. And so there are people who have tumors that grow of the pineal gland. And if you cut it out, they don't become spiritless. <laughs> so I don't think that this, you know, like, <laughs> I don't think this is it. And I think that this is kind of a flaw to try to look for a physical correlate to a spiritual thing. Mm. And I think, you know, if you are trying to do that, you're conflating, you're mixing things that are totally separate. Like you're mixing subject and object. And it's just like the eye, like an eye can never see itself. Like no matter how many times it turns around, it can never see itself. So yeah, that's my take on that. <laughs> okay. No, I appreciate it. I'm like, I don't know enough. So I'm like looking to the expert right here to like enlighten us expert. on this. <laughs> <laughs> you know, a ton more than I do, that's for sure. So, but yeah, thank you for that. It is interesting, like these kind of like stories that come about telling us about like, oh, this is where this belongs. And it's like, may not, may or may not be true. Okay. So Let's talk a little bit more about stress, because I feel like that one is very interesting area. So, you know, stress is obviously something that like we're all dealing with on a constant basis. So can you talk a little bit about the stress response and then how yoga is affecting the stress response? Yeah, 100%. So stress is the mobilization of resources in order to accomplish something. I think that's the best way to think about it. So if we think about all of the stress pathways, they're multiple. They're the kinds of things that actually wake us up in the morning, right? You need a certain level of stress and alertness to get up and do things. So I think the first thing I have to say about stress is it's not a bad thing. It's really just about mobilizing resources. And there's this very famous set of experiments that resulted in this curve called the Yerkes-Dodson curve. And what they did is they plotted stress on the x-axis and performance on the y-axis. Can I draw this for you? Sure. I will mention this is a podcast, so a lot of people will not be seeing your drawing. So you have to explain it. <laughs> right. I'm going to describe it. So stress is on the bottom and performance is on the y-axis. And so everyone who thinks of this will... Does it show up backwards or can you see it right way? I can see it the right way. Okay, great. Also, I love that you have a whiteboard just like right next to you. <laughs> 
So people think that, you know, as stress goes up, performance is going to go down. So the graph would just look like this. Mm -hmm. But that's actually not what it looks like. So it actually looks like this, a bell curve, mm. which means that when stress is low, performance is low. When stress is really high, performance is low. But when stress is at a midpoint, performance is really high. Mm. And so this is really helpful to see, I think. I think it just makes so much sense about how we need to regulate stress. And so a lot of stress research looks at the pathways of stress. So like the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis, the production of cortisol, the activation of the sympathetic nervous system. But all of these are really outputs. They are how the brain talks to and controls the body. So these are kind of like the arms that allow you to mobilize resources in, throughout the body. So when there's a lot of stress, take blood away from the gut, give it to the muscles, simple stuff like that. Mm -hmm. But the real interesting part about stress is the part that we don't understand. Like we understand all of those outputs very well, but in the brain, how does the brain decide what is stressful or not? So when we look at all the research that looks at how yoga affects stress, we see a lot of things showing that it changes sympathetic nervous system activity, it changes cortisol levels. And that's great. I think that's very helpful to know. In fact, there's some really interesting work showing that when you have people do yoga and you try to stress them out. So the way they stress them out is by making them like speak publicly or do like math in front of people, which is like so mean. But the people who do yoga have less of a stress response to that. Mm. But yoga isn't changing the stress system, like the outputs. It's changing the thing that determines what is stressful or not. It's changing the brain. That's really the interesting part that we don't understand. And I think kind of the hand wavy way to think about it is it's really this self-regulation thing. It's like, how much stress do I need to be at optimal performance right now? And you're able to titrate that. Mm, yeah, I see it as like the stimulus is the same, but our reaction or like the amount in which we are determining it as stressful is changing. Exactly. Okay. And we're able to make it so that it meets our goals. Like, we're like, okay, I am so stressed out right now that I actually can't stand up and do this public speech. Let's dampen it down a little bit. Or like, I don't care about this at all and I can't work on it. If I do some yoga, then I might be able to reflect on and see some purpose in it. And now I have more of a stress response to it to actually get work done. Oh, that's so interesting. Okay, so it's dialing it up or down depending to get in that kind of like, I am stressed enough that I will mobilize, but I am not too stressed out to the point where I'm just crippled by it. Exactly. All about self-regulation. That is so interesting. Okay. So it is actually helping us. That's the main thing that you're seeing is that yoga is actually helping us self-regulate. Correct. I think that's the best way to summarize it. Okay. Interesting. So something you had, we were talking about prior to this was like talking about mood disorders and like anxiety and depression. So is it the same kind of principle there? Yes. So I love that we talked about stress first because it makes this so much easier. So some of the most prevalent and disabling conditions in the modern world are depression and anxiety. And 100 years ago, that wasn't the case, but things have really changed. And we don't have amazing treatments <laughs> for this, right? Mm -hmm. And the amazing thing about yoga is that because of its effects on the stress response, on sleep, on all of that, I think that's why it's going to have these effects, but it, it dramatically improves depression and anxiety. And there are multiple, not only randomized controlled trials, but meta-analyses showing this. So what a meta-analysis is, is where someone takes a bunch of different research papers and mathematically puts them all together to get like the biggest study they can. Mm. And when they do that, so, you know, you might hear people say that like exercise is good for depression and anxiety. And that's true. But when they compare yoga to exercise, like aerobic exercise, yoga is more effective for depression and anxiety. And it probably has to do with these self-regulation pathways, the ability to regulate stress. I also think that there are, as part of self-regulation, kind of our attachment to things changes. And so how you interpret goals and how they affect your mobilization of resources and how you respond to things changes too. So you can see these are very like higher order abstract changes that yoga is resulting in. And that affects so many things lower down. Yeah, no, it's very interesting because that's the thing that I feel like was my question coming into this interview 
was that to me, it's like yoga tends to be kind of like that starting point that like gives us this like strong foundation of, as you said, like self-regulation and the ability to kind of like monitor ourselves and all these great things. But then it kind of like can branch us into so much more beyond that. And I feel like it's because it's rewiring, but maybe like changing all this, these structures in our brains that allows us to then create bigger, broader changes in our lives. Yeah, I think it's, you know, more and more papers are coming out. I don't know if we'll ever be able to quantify like the full amount of changes that people experience, because like one study is going to look at one outcome. It's going to look at like, how does it affect depression? How does it affect anxiety? But those same people are going to have improvements in their memory and their sleep and their relationships and all of that, you know, like it's really a global thing. And it's very hard to measure all of that at once. And there's a famous researcher at Harvard named Sapir Khalsa, whom I really look up to. And he says this so well, he says, you know, a lot of other things, a lot of other interventions that we do in medicine, we are looking at what are the side effects, you know, so like, this is the thing that we're studying. And then what other things do people report? So if I give them a calcium channel blocker for blood pressure, they might report some dizziness, they might report some nausea, you know, and what percent of people report that. But in yoga, the side effects are I'm sleeping better, I'm getting along with my wife, like, just like so many other things, right. And it's really interesting to think about it that way, too. Yeah, I love that. Because even as you were like, you know, saying all this list of things that these benefits from it, it's funny, because like, if you even take one of those benefits, it can be have such a big ripple effect, right? Like just getting better sleep alone is going to impact us in so many ways. But then you get to say like, oh, but you get better sleep, you have better mood, you have all these other things like the ripple effect is just expanded exponentially. Right. That's exactly it. Yeah, I love this. So one of the things that you and I had mentioned that we want to talk about is compassion. Mm -hmm. So compassion, especially for you and me, I feel like from Dharma yoga, compassion is such like the root of yoga. You know, it's ahimsa and something that we kind of base our lives in. So I was curious, like, what do you feel like is the effect of yoga and neuroscience and compassion? This is a really important question. And I think for the same reason, my interest was generated in this. And actually, during the conference, the Neuroscience and Yoga Online Conference in 2023, yoga and empathy was a whole day. And you would think like, how do you make a whole day out of that, right? But there are a ton of papers published on this, which is super cool. And I'm just going to summarize them as best I can. So first, we should just define what empathy and compassion are and how they differ from each other. So empathy is the ability to understand what someone else is going through. So you kind of see their facial expressions, their posture, their, you know, their speed of movement, and you're interpreting what are they going through, which again, is very abstract when you think about it, right? Mm -hmm. And then compassion is that, but you also want to help. Mm -hmm. So you suffer with them. So the way this has been studied is they do these experiments first where they just show people human eyes, like just their eyes, everything else is gone. <laughs> and from the eyes, people have to say what emotion that person is experiencing. This is called the reading the mind and the eyes test. And what they've shown is that it wasn't a pure yoga practice. They actually did a loving kindness meditation as the intervention. Mm -hmm. But when they did that, I forget how many weeks, maybe it was six, maybe it was eight, something like that. After the intervention, people were more accurate on the reading the mind and the eyes test. Mm -hmm. Okay, so now we've shown that it improves empathy, right? The ability to recognize emotions. They also did brain scans on this. They did fMRI and showed that there was a region of the left inferior frontal gyrus that correlated with this. You know, I think that's cool. I said before, there are a lot of limitations to fMRI, and I'm not sure it really means anything to show that a brain region is more active during a task. It kind of like lends weight that this is a neuroscientific phenomenon, but we already knew that, right? Like that's where empathy takes place. It's in the brain. Right. So the next experiment is they had people play this game called the dictator game. And you're kind of watching someone mistreat someone else. And you're the dictator. You get to decide what to do. And you can either take money yourself or give money to the victim, mm -hmm. the person who is kind of mistreated by someone else. Mm -hmm. And if you give money to the victim, you are giving up that money for yourself. You will not receive it as a participant anymore. So this is really a measure of compassion, right? There's an element of sacrifice there. Sure. And people were more likely to give more money with loving kindness meditation. Okay, so now we've shown that it has an effect on empathy and compassion. 
great. And then the last thing that's really interesting is there are kind of barriers to compassion. We apply compassion differently to different groups of people. And this is called implicit bias. So whether you like it or not, you unconsciously have biases against people. And this is a huge area of research because it's so important when you think about it. Like there is research showing that judges are more likely to give black defendants longer sentences. Mm -hmm. Doctors are less likely to give black patients pain medication. Like there's just so many implications for how this affects people's lives. And, you know, implicit bias, just to give you an example, if you think about an illusion, like, you know, like the vase face illusion, where if you look at it one way, it looks like a face. If you look at it another way, it looks like a vase. It's unconscious how you see that. Like at one point it looks like a face and then you look at it a quick second later and now it looks like a vase and you can't control that. Mm -hmm. Implicit bias is the same thing, except instead of the cue being like how you're looking at it, it's what someone's wearing, what car they drive, what watch they have on their hand, the color of their skin, the way they talk, their accent, like all of that are the things that inform implicit bias and make you ha see it a certain way and then act a certain way. Right. So implicit bias affects compassion. I don't think I need to argue that case anymore. And so they also did experiments where they took teachers and measured their implicit bias before a loving kindness meditation and then after. And they had less implicit bias. And I can't remember in that paper if they showed it affected student outcomes, but part of me says it did. I would need to double check. But could you imagine how amazing that would be? Like, yes, it affects implicit bias and this improves student outcomes if teachers practice yoga. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> or loving kindness meditation, at least. Right, right. So that's really the current evidence of how the practice of yoga affects compassion, which all of which I think is super interesting because it's like part of yoga is the practice of compassion. And yet doing all of the other things, the meditation, the breathing, the relaxation actually improves your ability to be compassionate. And I think that's probably something we've all experienced practicing yoga too. Yeah, I think it's interesting because it's like, you know, we study somewhere where it's like we talk a lot about compassion. But based on what you're talking about, it's not just us talking about it. It is just in the practice itself, it sounds like. And in this case, meditation. Right. No, I think that's very interesting because I think compassion is such like an important thing that it's like that imagine a world where like everyone has more compassion kind of thing. Like imagine a world where like more people are practicing yoga and therefore there's more compassion in the world. So it really gives you that, I don't know, that imagination of greater, brighter world one day. Yeah. You know, I've heard Dharma talk about the loving yoga army. And I read these papers and I was like, wow, this is making a loving yoga army. <laughs> yes, I love it. Okay, so I want to be cognizant of the time. Is there anything else that we have not covered off on that you would like to share? One more thing I would just like to say, you know, I think another aspect of how yoga and science can sometimes conflict and something that I really felt is in the yoga world, kind of the rejection of science and the kind of rejection of of medical treatments. And I think this is one of the worst things that can happen. So, you know, I've heard literally with my own ears, heard people talking about stopping cancer treatments and instead pursuing yoga. And I can understand where those people are coming from. I think there are harms that have been generated by the medical system, but there's a lot of evidence that treatment for cancer works. In the last 20 years, the way that cancer treatment has evolved is incredible. I think it's a model for everywhere else in science. And to reject that, <laughs> I, I'm having a hard time articulating it, but it makes me very upset. It's like you're literally putting someone's life in danger, like they can die from that. And when we understand that, you know, science is really good at understanding the objective world, and yoga is really good at understanding the subjective world, they can actually coexist and complement each other so well. And you don't need to reject, you know, I think a lot of medicine people would reject yoga, like, oh, it's fake, uh, hippie, hippie. But the, uh, you know, all the scientific evidence is coming out that yoga has all these effects, right? Well, at the same time, I think that yogis need to accept that there's a lot of evidence that modern medicine does a lot of things correctly. And yeah, I think that's just an area I'm really interested in and kind of like combating misinformation that exists in the yoga world. Mm. No, I think that's a great call out because I agree where there's this idea where it's like it feels to your point of your whole experience. It's like it's one or the other. And it's like, how can we appreciate both and find the ways in which we, you know, like not completely reject 
modern medicine because we are um, in the yoga path or vice versa and be able to see the the synergies or the ways that they can both like benefit us because like at the end of the day like there have been incredible advances in modern medicine and we shouldn't just completely reject them right and you know it hasn't been shown actually it has been shown what am i saying people who do yoga and take the full complement of cancer treatment do better it's actually been shown i just realized that and this is across so many different aspects. So yoga for cancer patients improves their mood. It improves just like with everyone else, except it's even more of an effect because cancer patients have, you know, just so much going on in their lives. And yeah, it's actually the perfect combination. So much so that the 2024 Neuroscience and Yoga Online Conference, I think, is going to include a whole day on yoga and cancer. Mm. Oh, that's so interesting. Because yes, I feel like there have been, I don't know, there's so many like anecdotes of people completely like ending their treatment and then going into like, good habits and all those great things. But to your point, it's like keeping the medicinal side of things is important. Yeah. And I think the example that always sticks in my mind, you know, I'm a huge Apple fan. And so when Steve Jobs, I was too young to really understand, you know, but Mm -hmm. To realize now that Steve Jobs rejected cancer treatment in favor of drinking green juices mm. is terrifying. Like he probably could have lived a lot longer. Wow. That's so interesting. I didn't realize that that's what he had done. Yeah. Okay. Thank you for sharing that. That is very interesting. All right. So are you ready to dive into your final questions now? I'm scared, but I'm ready. <laughs> <laughs> Don't be scared. <laughs> All right. The first question is, how would you describe your current relationship to yourself? Oh, boy. Um, <laughs> Lay on the compassion. <laughs> <laughs> I'm usually very neutral towards my body and mind. I kind of treat them like employees, like Dharma would say. Mm. When we say self, I'm talking about my body and mind right now. And I try to be really good to them. You know, I try not to sleep deprive them. Last night I was on call and there was so much going on and I was like, you know what, I'm going to finish this fast and I'm going to lay down and go to sleep. And if there's an emergency, someone will call me. And if not, then I'll be asleep. <laughs> and yeah, so I used to be someone who is very strict with my body and mind. I used to, you know, if they had anything that they wanted, I'd be like, no, you have to work for it. <laughs> but now I'm pretty gentle with them towards my real self. I am still working on that relationship. <laughs> That's real. Constant journey. <laughs> okay. Next question is, what is something you are currently working on? So I am at this inflection point. No, not an inflection point. I guess it's like a transition in my life where I've, I'm nearing the end of a lot of medical training. And I now get to decide what my career and my life will look like with a level of autonomy I've never had before. And I am working on how to think about that. I'm, I'm at like the contemplative stage of figuring this out. It's really exciting, but also kind of scary at the same time, how, how to build my career. And I'm thinking a lot about what principles I want to incorporate in every decision I make in that process. And yeah, that's what I'm working on. Amazing. Well, the world is your oyster right now, which is... <laughs> both amazing and terrifying, which, you know, I can relate to. I think I'm going to take like a six month vacation at the end of fellowship, though. <laughs> that sounds like a great idea because you have worked so hard <laughs> to this point. All right. So next question is, what do you consider most valuable to you right now? I think always the most valuable thing to me is my ability to reflect and think. And OK, so Dharma has explained so clearly to us the Yoga Sutras and the Bhagavad Gita. And I kind of have this bank in my head, and I hope to always have it there. Like if I get demented, I want this to be the last thing to go. And it's just kind of like checklists almost. Like I can evaluate any situation in my life and be like, okay, why am I suffering? And I'm like, oh, am I afraid of death? Am I attached? Am I repulsed? Am I egotistical? Am I ignorant of my supreme self, right? And I can just go down those and be like, oh, that's what I'm doing wrong. Okay, I can fix that. Ah, the glaciers. Yeah, exactly. And I can kind of go down the yamas and the niyamas and be like, you know, why am I struggling right now? Like, it's so interesting. I feel like every time that I've really struggled is because I wasn't doing my practice correctly. And then when I fix my practice, everything else falls into place. And there's this great example, which is so crazy 
So when I was applying to medical school, I really wanted to stay in New York, but medical school is very like competitive and it's kind of random where you're going to get in. And, you know, I had gotten to a school that was near New York, like it was in New Jersey, but I kind of didn't want to go there. And there was a school in Chicago I was going to go to. And I was sad to like leave New York and leave Dharma. And I had to like lease an apartment. I was like ready to move there. And I was going every week to Andrew's psychic development. And like my visualization at the end of the practice, we always do this visualization where we're like, what do we want for ourselves? And I was visualizing going to school in New York, which is what I wanted. But it wasn't happening. Like it just kept not happening. And then I was like, you know what? I need to give this up because I want to stay in New York for selfish reasons. And maybe in Chicago, I'll have new things. And I just need to accept that. A few days later, got into school in New York. Wow. <laughs> and it's like the attachment I was having to going to school in New York was the problem. <laughs> yeah, you had to surrender. Exactly. So yeah, I'm most thankful for the ability to have those checklists in my mind and like go through and be like, okay, how do I correct the body and mind here and practice appropriately? Oh, I love that. That's an amazing story. I'm like, now I'm going to start doing that when I'm struggling. <laughs> <laughs> okay, next question is, how would you describe your current purpose? Yeah, it's also in that contemplative stage where I'm figuring out, you know, a lot of things. I mean, I feel very, medicine has exhausted me. And it's really hard. There's so many reasons why it's hard. It's from every angle. It's like the administration is hard. The bureaucracy is hard. Like the way insurance companies do everything and block care is hard. But also patients can be very hard because they're at their most vulnerable state and it brings out the worst in people. And everything about it is just so hard. And I'm kind of like figuring out what to do with that now. Like, I feel this way. So how do I deal with it being so hard? You know, I didn't have a choice before. Like, I just had to finish residency and I, I have to do a fellowship. So like, now that I have a choice, it's like, am I going to practice medicine? Am I going to see patients? Like, what is it going to be like? I think I do derive a lot of purpose from practicing medicine. And like I said, like the times that someone's speech was restored or like anything like that. Like, there was this one guy once. <laughs> <laughs> this one guy came in and he couldn't talk and he like was having lunch with his friend and just like suddenly lost the ability to talk. They came to the hospital really quickly, like within an hour, we were able to get him to thrombectomy, which is where they pull the clot out. And the next morning I went to go see him and I'm like, how are you doing? And he's like, my speech still isn't good. It's a little convoluted. <laughs> and I was like, oh, come on. Like you just said the word convoluted. You couldn't talk at all yesterday. <laughs> And, you know, I still felt so amazed by that happening. Like, it's such a cool, fulfilling thing to see that. So I think what it really comes down to, and this might be helpful for the audience, is the pancake analogy, which is, you know, everyone likes pancakes to some extent. And if I told you, like, yeah, you're going to eat a pancake a week for the rest of your life, you'd be like, that's pretty good. I'll take that. But if I told you you were going to eat 80 pancakes a week for the rest of your life, you'd be like, I don't like pancakes anymore. <laughs> And I think, I think that's like kind of what I'm going through is like, you know, maybe I just don't like 80 pancakes a week and I just need to do like five pancakes a week. Mm. And then the other stuff that I would fill my career with, I'm still figuring out too. <laughs> that's a great perspective, right? Like maybe it's not like you go full force and have 80 pancakes, but it's maybe five. <laughs> right. Yeah. Amazing. All right. So... Next question is, what is the best lesson you've learned recently? Mm -hmm. This one's really bizarre. Like, please bear with me. But I have not stopped thinking about this. And I think kind of like my role has evolved in medicine to the point where like sometimes now I'm supposed to be like a teacher. Like I'm supposed to teach medical students and junior residents, like how do you survive and do this? And I've learned that you can't teach people by telling them sometimes. Mm -hmm. You know, I would think that you could just tell people things and they would trust you and then they, you know, follow it. But sometimes you have to like show them. And I could tell the story where I learned this. And I didn't learn it at the moment that this happened to me, but someone did this to me. Someone showed me instead of telling me. And years later, I was like, wait, I did the right thing because they showed me and didn't tell me. Mm. And so now I'm kind of like, oh, I need to like when I'm teaching 
I have to figure out if it's something that can't be told and I have to show people. And sometimes they have to like suffer a little bit to learn it, which is bizarre, but like it's actually how it has to be. <laughs> Oh, that's such an interesting lesson. It's true. Like, because sometimes we reject what we're being told. Exactly. Right. And that's when it matters. Like, you have to show someone when they're going to reject it if you tell them. Mm. Yeah. Oh, that's powerful. <laughs> okay. Last question What is the number one skill you believe everyone should work on? Self regulation. That was easy. Via yoga? <laughs> you know, and this is also interesting. I think yoga is really powerful. There are head-to-head comparisons showing yoga is better at certain things than aerobic exercise, but that doesn't mean that it's the best for everyone, right? Even if on average it is. And so I think however people work on self-regulation is appropriate. Mm, That's a fair point. Okay. So self-regulation in whatever format, do you have like examples of other things that you feel like could help people with self-regulation? Yeah. So one of them is just meditation. So I know that that's part of yoga, so maybe not the best example. But other kind of mind-body practices like Tai Chi have been studied for this. So I think I can't come up with a complete list right now. That's okay. (laughs) But I'm sure also like, like cognitive behavioral therapy and dialectical behavioral therapy. I don't really go into that scientific literature, so I don't know what's been done to show self-regulation there. But that's, I'm sure, something else that affects self-regulation. Yeah, lots of things. Yeah, absolutely. No, a lot of things of like just getting more like closer to your emotions and and understanding like how you think and all these kind of things are definitely going to help you self-regulate better. So yeah, there's plenty of options out there for people to learn self-regulation. Yeah. Okay, awesome. Well, before we close up, Jonathan, how can people get in touch with you? First, I just have to say I'm shocked I survived the questions. That's terrifying. (laughs) You did great. (laughs) So I do have an Instagram that's more like the neuroscience and yoga stuff. I don't have a lot of like personal stuff. Like I don't have a personal Instagram, but if people reach out to the neuroscience and yoga Instagram, I do receive it and I'm happy to always talk. And if people are interested in neuroscience and yoga, the neuroscience and yoga online conference runs year round. So there's an encore of the conference and it's free. It's really donation based, but you can do it for free if you want to. And yeah, so you just search Neuroscience and Yoga Online Conference. Right. And your Instagram is at NeuroYoga? NeuroYoga NYC. Okay, that's it. And it's N-E-U-R, which is the correct spelling. I'm just saying that because sometimes people spell it N-U-E-R, but it's N-E-U-R-O, NeuroYoga. All right. So go follow at NeuroYoga NYC to learn so much more about all the great work that Jonathan does. And thank you so much, Jonathan. This was such a pleasure having you on the show. I feel like I learned so much today and about the brain. And I hope that it will help other people learn more about their brains and, you know, all the great work that you do. So thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much, Jess. This was really so much fun. I was terrified that I would be like, oh, God, I have nothing to talk about. But we got to talk about neuroscience. So there were things in my head to talk about. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, there were many things that we could have even talked about more. I'm like, we went over time. I'm like, I could talk to you all day. There's so much to cover. We'll probably bring you on again. And we'll talk about all kinds of other neuroscience things. So that was never a concern of mine. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you again. It was truly an honor. Yes, thank you. Thank you for joining us on this episode of A Way of Thinking. I hope it has been a source of inspiration and guidance as you continue to navigate your path towards greater inner peace and purpose. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, rate, and leave a review. Your feedback helps us reach more seekers like you. And for those of you who are ready to take a deeper dive into your journey, I invite you to book a dream job discovery session with me, your host, Jessica Huang. It's an opportunity for us to explore how you can bring greater meaning and purpose into your career and life. Simply visit jessicahuangcoaching.com and schedule your session today. Remember, the power to create the life you desire resides within you, and I'm here to support you every step of the way. Until next time, embrace the journey cultivate your inner peace, and never stop seeking your true purpose.